Welcome to Hashtag CNF, a podcast about reading and writing with authors in the genre of creative nonfiction. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Susan Kushner Resnick is the author of Goodbye Wives and Daughters, which won a gold medal for nonfiction from the Independent Publishers Book Awards. Her first book, Sleepless Days, One Woman's Journey Through Postpartum Depression, was the first PPD memoir by an American author. In her latest book, You Save Me Too, What a Holocaust Survivor Taught Me About Living, Dying, Fighting, Loving, and Swearing in Yiddish, Susan writes of the chance encounter she had with Aaron Lieb, a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps, and the blossoming love and friendship that came from that meeting. It is my great pleasure to welcome Susan Kushner Resnick to hashtag CNF. So, Thanks so much, Brendan. Yes, you're very welcome. It's really an honor that we can kick off this podcast in style. So what did Aaron teach you about living, dying, fighting, loving, and swearing in Yiddish? Well, he didn't exactly tell me, you know, this is how to live in that Tuesdays with Maury way. Mm-hmm. He was he was a little too irritable and cranky for that. But he taught me things by forcing me to go through situations that taught me how to live. For example, I had to fight all these battles for him, and I got to learn about good people and bad people. And so he kind of launched me on a journey. But one of the most concrete things I learned, which sounds basic, um, is that when you spend that much time with someone who survived the Holocaust and hear their story, you kind of get perspective on your life to the point where now whenever I'm having a bad day and start whining in my head, I just say to myself, you know what, babies aren't dying. It doesn't matter. And I Mm. think that that's a really important lesson. I'm glad that I internalized. And talk about what it means to be a soulmate. Until I read your book, I I had always associated the term with uh, with marriage partners and so forth. Thank you, Hollywood. Uh, but but you sketch a totally different interpretation of soulmate. So uh, expand on that. Well, I was always amazed at how similar we were, and we had nothing in common on the surface. You know, different generations, different education. You know, he was super poor. I was middle class, Polish American. Everything that could be different was different, but. Inside, we were so similar, it was eerie. You know, we would understand each other and think the same things and like the same things. And I felt like, wow, this is kind of really my other half. You know, I feel like this guy is whatever a soulmate is, he's the thing. And I realized at the same time, oh, it isn't supposed to be a romantic partner necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, whoever you connect with. Right, and also given that you just, you randomly met him and he just, he uh, kind of bumped into your son, right? And when he was, you know, when your son was very little and that also goes to uh, this greater thing that maybe you guys were meant to meet each other. Yeah, and he always used to say that that, you know, God brought us together and things like that. Yeah, it was very strange. And as I write in the book, it's like we were continuing a conversation the first time we talked. He just walked up to me. I was holding my son. He asked about him. And I don't even remember us really introducing each other. We just started talking and kept talking. Describe your approach to writing the book. Um, I chose to interpret it as a love letter in a lot of ways, as you use the second person to speak directly to Aaron. And we as the readers are, are eavesdropping. So how, how did you come to that decision? 
Um, well, I came to that decision actually while I was driving to his deathbed, which is how I start the story. Mm-hmm. And I realized that if he indeed was dying that day, which he did, I wouldn't be able to talk to him anymore, and that just made me so sad. I mean, I wanted to tell him about that day. So I decided, oh, this is how I can tell the story, as if I'm telling it to him. And then I had to figure out how to bring in all the history, but I figured, you know, he was 91. Well, he could have forgotten a lot of what he had told me, so I told it as if I was reminding him of things Mm -hmm. and catching him up on what he didn't know about me. What was the challenge in braiding Aaron's history your history and that day, January 9th, 2011, that proves to be the anchor through which the story adheres? Well, you know, I I was really inspired by Nick Flynn's book, um, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, because he tells a story, and it's linear in a way, but it jumps back and forth in time during that line, and so that's what I did. I kept the story moving to a certain point forward, but I would go back and jump around, because it was really hard to um, to keep in that I'm talking to you right now and bring the history into it. Setting up that structure was the hardest thing to do. Once I did that, I've been taking notes on this story for 14 years, mm-hmm. and just plugging them in was the easy part. And how much did you learn about human perseverance in your research? Um, oh, God, a lot. I mean, I just learned that you don't always choose to to push through, but you got to do it. And you just, you know, there's no way to decide who's going to live and who's going to die and you have to keep working. And what was it about Aaron that kept him alive through the camps? And even once he emigrated and found found life to, to keep screwing him as he aged? Yeah. Um, well, you know, the answer to that is I don't know because I kept asking him. And so there are different theories in the book. Sometimes he would say it was luck. Sometimes he would say it was God. Sometimes he would say it's because he was so poor when he was young that he was used to being hungry. You know, there were all these weird circumstances that happened. He he missed being selected for the gas chamber by one day because of a potato shipment. So all mm-hmm. these, you know, strange things would happen. And who knows why some people survive and why some people, you know, great people die young. There's really... No, I have no answer for that. In reading his survivor's tale, I, I kind of thought of another, you know, World War Two World War Two era tale in uh, in Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken with Louis Zamperini and how on earth he survived his POW camp and also being at stranded at sea for forty some odd days. It just it it's pretty remarkable how how some people have the the fortitude of mind to be able to. Uh, I don't know, to ignore their surroundings in some cases and and just keep their eyes on some distant future that might not exactly exist. Yeah, I mean, in his case, I think it was more deliberate than in Aaron's. I think Aaron was just kind of getting through the days, which I think a lot of survivors were. I mean, they were so hungry and thirsty, they couldn't think in a rational way anymore. But sometimes I think that, um, and this is kind of romantic, but that these people survive so they can teach us a lesson about mm-hmm. life. And maybe Aaron couldn't die till he had, you know, taught me and other people around him what they needed to know. And there was no shortage of of books about the Holocaust. So was there any hesitation on your point to add to that collection? Or did you feel any pressure contributing to that pantheon of books about such a, you know, a horrific and iconic event of the 20th century? Well, I wrote a proposal for this 
kind of story years ago, and it involved Aaron and his girlfriend, who was a refugee from the Soviet Union. And I thought that that would be an interesting story. And it got completely rejected by everyone because they said, nobody wants to read about the Holocaust. And I would tell Aaron that because he knew I was writing about him, and he would say, so how's the book coming? Um, So this time, when I realized it was more of a story about how he had changed me and not just a Holocaust story, then I felt better about trying to sell it. And indeed, I don't have that much about his days in the camps. I have some, kind of an outline, but it's not primarily about that. And I just finished reading uh, The Blind Side by Michael Lewis. and here's this family that brings in a dependent person, needs a lot of attention. And in some ways, I felt a similar presence of Aaron in your life for your family. Talk about striking the balance between your family and what was essentially an adopted family member in his advanced years that would require, require a lot of care and time. Well, strangely, it didn't affect my family that much. Most of the time when I was with him, it was while my kids were at school, my husband was at work, you know, I'm a freelance writer, I can do that whenever I want or, you know, not do it as long as I'm procrastinating. So it didn't affect them that much. People ask me that all the time. They just kind of saw it as um, my project. You know, this is the thing I do once a week during the day, or these are the moms on the phone yelling at someone again about Aaron. I think they just saw it as part of our what our family did. And it, you you said that it, uh, this book, in a lot of ways, was a a conversation uh, with him, and and do you still find yourself um, uh, talking with him and speaking with him? Uh, once in a while, but I think that writing the book kind of got it out of my system. Uh, I do wear a bracelet all the time with his uh, Holocaust number, his tattoo um, engraved on it. So I always feel like he's kind of with me. The name of the book, again, is You Save Me Too, What a Holocaust Survivor Taught Me About Living, Dying, Fighting, Loving, Swearing in Yiddish. The book is published by Skirt. Thank you, Susan Kushner-Resnick. Thanks. It's an honor to be the first one.